You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your fearless, fearless and heroic leader, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined as always by sexy Irish Sean. I can't get him to leave me alone, but Rick is gone in the desert today. <laughs> I don't think anyone knows where he is. He's got a gun. I know that. He's surviving. Yes, he has guns (laughs) and he has really lame board games. His cell phone reception doesn't work unless he goes to the top of a mountain, uh, which he does for five minutes a day. He does have a radio, a satellite radio. I'm sure he'll listen to this at some point. And uh, anyway, we're joined also by a guest, Eric Geller of Quest and Cannon's fame, along with uh, his wife, Shannon, who is probably here in spirit, but not at present. I was really excited to bring Eric on to the podcast because I watched Eric grow from someone who had an idea for a game to somebody that really embraced building momentum for his project. I thought that it was a really unique project because he had a lot of heart and soul put into the project and a lot of hopes and dreams, but you know, a lot working against him. I felt from my perspective, being a first time creator and that kind of thing. And there were a couple of things that I felt that he did really, really well. And so I was very excited to talk to him. He ended up raising well over three times his goal. And I am excited to talk to him. So welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. I I love your podcast and it's been uh, it's really exciting to be on to talk with you. That's awesome. And now that you have finished your Kickstarter, you don't need to listen to our podcast until like a year and a half from now when you have your next Kickstarter. Is that right? Well, I'm actually starting a new job this Monday that has a commute. So I'm excited to catch up on a lot of the episodes that I haven't had as much time to listen to. So that's that's going to be my commute there and back. You can join the tens of tens of listeners. <laughs> the tens of listeners. <laughs> no, I think we actually get uh, what like three or 400 listeners a week, which is kind of yeah. cool. That's so awesome. when we publish our podcast on time, it, uh, you know, on Tuesday, sometimes it comes out on Thursday or whatever, because we just get busy. And uh, I looked at the top episodes, top performing episodes, and they all had one thing in common. They all had Kickstarter in the title. So I think we should just like cram this, this week's episode <laughs> with the term Kickstarter. Kickstarter oh. creator launches Kickstarter successful Kickstarter. Post Kickstarter discussion about Kickstarter. <laughs> Uh, that sounds great. So let's have that discussion. That is the title. The subtitle will be Eric Geller, colon, Quests and Cannons Kickstarter. So Eric, let's give our listeners a background on who you are. And you know what I'm really interested in is how the idea went from an idea to something that someone other than you and your mom and your wife cared about. That's what I kind of want to know is like, how did you make the transition from a fun idea into something that people started talking about online yeah uh so quest and cannons i think started off as this homebrew dungeons and dragons campaign that i was working on for like a year prior to any kind of design work on quest and cannons and it was this homebrew island questing dungeons and dragons homebrew with i went I went deep into it. You know, my wife's friend groups, you know, all her friends married nerds like me and, and they all wanted to play D and D because it's, you know, growing popularity and it's, you know, hitting that popular culture kind of area. And I was like, you know, being the obsessive compulsive 
me. I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to build my own Dungeons and Dragons campaign for everyone to play. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so I spent like a, you know, a year <laughs> building that campaign because I wanted to be well prepared. And I put a bunch of work into it. And then once we got around to scheduling those initial sessions, we got one going and then no one's schedules lined up because, you know, we're adults with busy lives. And uh, it was really sad. <laughs> what do we um, want to do? D&D. When do we want to do it? Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. It's exactly how it happened, sadly. So I had this whole thing in boxes in my brain. And then our our son was born. And then six months later, I was, you know, in this state of sleep-deprived delirium. Uh, and a friend came over who had this rad sketchbook full of artwork that had like these super high resolution like fantasy sketches. And I'm like, oh, these would be these are great inspiration for for a game. And then these, you know, probably from that Dungeons and Dragons campaign, it kind of just like flooded out into oh, let's do this, 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 this. And I filled up a notebook of ideas, and that was really the the birth of Quest and Cannons. It wasn't originally called Quest and Cannons. It didn't have a name, of course, at the start. Um, and it was this uh, big kludge of game features that was basically translating that Dungeons & Dragons campaign into a board game. Started by bringing it to you know people close to me and being like hey let's let's play test this board game that I'm working on and originally Shannon wouldn't touch it because it was a complex monster where you had to you were hiring crew you were feeding your crew if you didn't feed the, your crew they oh, die the, like that's you had to scavenge on islands <laughs> yeah no it was, it was punishment she's like i'm not touching this no way dude like i'd start talking to her and it's like oh what would have to change for you to you know try this out and she'd be like oh this 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 make it simpler streamline it etc cetera, etc cetera. so i'd like make changes to it so she kind of like became like the game developer yeah just de facto <laughs> developer like she wasn't like fully on board with it at that point and she didn't she didn't really know that she was playing that role at the time but then it, it got it was eventually getting to that point where she was like okay i'll sit down and play it and then the original theme to it was uh like a bit grittier like re like realistic you know fantasy or maybe steampunkish and she was like well to give it like more broad appeal or make it make it a game that she would more like she was like i think it needs to be floofier so bit, you know it, more more approachable artwork and like ideas with theme so that that was really like the start of it becoming quest and cannons as it is now and like our company mission of of bridging the gap between newcomers to the hobby and seasoned gamers mm -hmm. uh, so quest and cannons for me it kind of fills just from an outside perspective it fills the role of Catan, where it's a gateway game that is a little more complicated but not too gnarly and i think that your work with your wife and really trying to make it a game that she would want to play that would appeal to her is something that I think a lot of people miss in their development. They make the game that they would want to play, but not, you know, and, and in essence, they make a game that only they understand. And that's a big problem, you know? It's, totally. Uh, yeah, so I, I've encountered the same challenge where I'm, I make a game that I think is just awesome, and it's like, you know, edge cases and rules after rules that my wife is like, what the heck are, you know, we even doing right now? Um, <laughs> yeah, nice I mean, that, that voice of sanity. That I mean, that was that was the biggest pull. And eventually I was as with talking with Shannon more and more, I kind of just emulated that thought process. 
mm -hmm. uh, to get to the point where we could work together to streamline the game so we didn't have those edge case rules. So every like all the rules were congruent. Like we did a big push on this idea of like a rule of three. So there's three three main factions. There's three core actions, three action points per turn, three different card types, three different ship upgrades. That's consistent through a lot of the design of the game to help again streamline those rules. So just to kind of recap what we what we said, if we put it in Pokemon terms, capture a wife that's a non-gamer, um, train her and level her up, um, and she will guide you evolve. to make a successful evolve. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's exactly how how it happened actually, and that's a that's that's a big reason why our, our company is called Short Hop Games. The the store we have a funny story behind that is the. When we, we first started dating, I got her uh, a 3DS and I was it, Smash Bros just came out for the 3DS. And I was like, we should play Smash Bros together. It's a super fun game. We shouldn't just start playing it, though. You need to like practice with me and like learn the, the techniques of the <laughs> game so you can stomp on noobs. So we spent like three hours of her. I was just teaching her how to short hop just like pressing the jump button lightly so uh -huh. she could learn how to short hop. Oh, that's and... awesome. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> that's a, I like that. Wasn't her expectation of playing a game yeah. with someone, but it actually, you know, she took it to heart and like actually took the time to practice that. And it built like a really strong foundation for her to get really good at the game and that's, she ended up cool. beating Smashing a lot of my friends right. yes yeah, stomping a lot of noobs left and right it was hilarious that's impressive yeah i uh i got my wife into gaming generally we started with like nintendo wii and wii sports and whatnot but when we got into real gaming it was we played a game called Baldur's gate for playstation 2 nice and good she game. would yeah i would uh, run around we'd slay you know monsters and whatever and the gold would drop on the ground and when you run over it you pick it up and yeah as gamers, we know that that gold is shared 50-50, but my <laughs> wife would get so mad when I would pick up gold. She'd be like, I want to get gold too, you know, and she would like abuse me. So first game awesome. I played with my wife was Quake Live, so it's probably not the best one to <laughs> drop a new Maybe into. not. She couldn't even turn the corners. It was ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like 1v1? <laughs> You're like this. You're spawn camping her? Jeez, Sean. <laughs> she did finish Portal, though. It was the first video game she ever nice. finished. Portal one. That's pretty awesome. That is awesome. So, now, Quest and Cannons is a thing. And a lot of people get to this place where, in fact, a lot of people that I talked to, this was your first game, right? And yeah. it was your baby. And I know oh, that you have plans for where it's going to go next. And, you know, an idea of where it's going to go next. I know you, we were talking about kind of like a three-game series from the last I, I heard. And there were a lot of ideas. But... The challenge is, so you create this theme and this this world that you guys care about, but there are so many other things vying for attention. How do you get somebody to become interested in a new, in essence, what amounts to a new intellectual property that is way less popular than something like Lord of the Rings or Skyrim or you know Fallout or you, you name it? It's a really difficult prospect. And that's when we initially had our conversations just, you know, well before you ended up bringing us on as a, or as a vendor for you, my chief concern was, okay, you have a thing, but I'm concerned that you can't make people care enough about your thing in order to do very well. And so that's kind of where my mind was at. And I was, I was trying to give the best advice I could just to help you along. But what I was impressed with was that you really 
began to embrace community and other things. I would see you talking about the game and then involving, you know, I guess rather than me talking about it, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Like Quest and Cannons is a thing and we're going to go to Kickstarter to actually having a community that cared enough to put their money where their mouth is. I'm sure you know uh, the community building part of it is a massive slog, but it's just a t- it's just a ton of work. It's talking with people all the time, get, you know, finding out what interests them about games in general, and then seeing where your game fits into that interest. Um, and then on on the intellectual property side, oh, what let's I found- let's drill deeper into that. That is yeah. so smart. What you just said just is. Oh, I said so important. All right, cool. Okay, on the yes. right page. Cool, cool. Yes. So let's let's drill deeper into what you just said. I can't remember it. It was good. I just need you to repeat it. So it was like testing your audience, throwing something out there, seeing how they react, and then pivoting based on their response. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it's the, the market research side. Is like you know, what are you looking for in a game? What do you like? Of you know, if if you have an idea for a game already. And you're trying to fit into a space, ideally, you're trying to fit into a space that doesn't quite exist, or you're trying to innovate on a space that needs some form of innovation, like, because we have a sandbox style game. So we, we looked for people talking about sandbox games. And then we, we asked them questions about oh, what, what do you not like about sandbox games? Or what do you, what do you, what do you feel like could be done better in this space? And we really tried to incorporate that into our design of quests and canons. Like, like game length was a big one that people talked about was that, you know, with Merchants and Marauders, great game. But the one you have the approachableness of it, it's, it's on the complexer side of, side of the scale and it can take, you know, a decent amount of time to table. And then you have like Wasteland Express Delivery Service, that four player game takes like three plus hours. And that's... That's kind of a time frame that a lot of that becomes inaccessible for a lot of people in the hobby, especially people that are newer to the hobby. Like you want to hit that one hour to two hour mark, uh, you know, once you go up over four people in a game, you know, two hours is probably more more in line for that experience. But, you know, four players and, and less, you know, one hour is mm-hmm. that sweet spot. Just to reiterate for a third time, because I feel like it's so important I'll, I'll, I'll state it in like the marketer's terms. So as a marketer, I take a project or, you know, Sean and I take projects and we write ad text and we pair them with images and build landing pages and try to uh, entice people to subscribe to your email list or to back your project. And it's very, very difficult for us, sometimes at least, to to figure out what your people like about the project. Almost always we need to hear from the creator themselves, what do these people care about? Who are they? And and where are they? And if you're able to give us those answers, it's going to be so much easier. Better yet, if you bake the answers into your actual game, it's nice when you can say, here's a thing, and then the right people see what they, what they wanted right away. I know for myself, as a, a great example of a gateway game, the setup is kind of a big deal. So, you know, you look at a game like Catan, we talked about that earlier, that has like individual hexes, but you have hex that are like three hex clusters. And I really liked that just to make like streamlined setup and, and other things like that. I, I don't know, just a, a, as like a, a, a side note, but I love 
that you took the market research really seriously, but uh, was it just on social media or what else did you do? So How did you learn what people liked? We did. So there's a lot of social media market research. I mean, there's tons of people throughout Facebook. I think Facebook has been our our biggest tap for, for market research just because the Facebook groups are just so numerous and there's so many people talking about board games. And, it, and it's easy. I, I think it's easier to interact with people than like compared to Twitter where you're you're limited to to message responses and, and, you know, character limits, you know, even before social media, um, we actually, we went out to like local malls and just like struck up conversations with people in like game stores and stuff like that. And talked to people about board games, showed them what we're working on and asked them questions and got a bunch of market research data on like what they're looking for in a game. So Eric, did you continue to do this when, you had a landing page and you're running ads and the game was, you know, pretty much developed. Did you continue this process of iteration or did it, was this really before you sort of start throwing money at this? I mean, I, it's been a constant process. You know, I'm, I'm always looking at, Hey, what could we do be doing better? What, you know, what's not connecting with people. And even, even with the success of this campaign, I'm like still furiously looking for you know what could we have done better what could we have done better what didn't connect as well as it could have so that's that's always something we're looking on and that's i think that's been a big big boon to the success of of quest and cannons is that we have been really open to feedback throughout the entire process if you had a, a time machine and if you go back before you started working on any of this what would you say to yourself start with a smaller game <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. uh, i mean if i was if i was still gonna be you know if i was like i'll start with a smaller game and then pass me was like no delusions of grandeur make it big and don't don't you know don't hold back uh then it, it would honestly a lot of it would start start with make making sure to get you know marketing funnels set up right from the start having like the facebook group like knowing what i know now like setting up all the marketing funnels to function as efficiently as possible right out the gate so that I wasted no time collecting email addresses, integrating people into our community, you know, well, you know, good functioning welcome emails, like all, all, all that stuff. Cause that, that was definitely a learning curve getting things going. Um, and if I knew what I knew now, I it would have definitely been a smoother path gaining momentum. So that's that's basically the virtuous cycle. Uh, we kind of harp on that all the time, but uh, we went over that in detail. I share it so often. I know that it is episode fourteen. So episode fourteen, and we <laughs> called it the virtuous circle, but we at least in text, and then we said the virtuous cycle. But yeah, it's probably um, my fault because the virtuous circle is a term in logic, so I yeah. confused it. <laughs> yeah, I think that. I mean, I just virtuous reasoning and. Yeah, yeah. You are much smarter than me, I think. So I'll just go with whatever you call it. Um, but yeah, the you know, just to make sure your landing page is up as early as possible. For me, that really helped when I was uh, years away from deliverance becoming a thing. I would also go to my local board game shop and um, we ended up doing a lot of just playtesting and, and that sort of thing. And as I would sit at the table... There would be people that would walk up and say, oh, what's this? And, you know, it's interesting. And then I could just say, oh, yeah, just go to this website real quick and you can hop on 
for for email updates. And I would say I built probably 200 people that way over nice. over the course of time. And just to simply have a, a, a website with, you know, a, a landing page that could capture their email that was responsible for, I guess it ended up being like five to 7% of my overall emails on launch day. You know, it was free and easy. So I've just looked at your, over your account to just sort of narrow down what was the most effective ad, got the most results, the best, at the best price. And it's one you wouldn't think would be a good ad. And this is why we do so much testing. It was basically the, 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 the text, the copy was just bullet points. And we, we put like these check marks. So it's yeah. like accessible deep strategy. And that was one check mark. <laughs> then we did another one like slotted ship themed player boards. And then another one was set in the immersive fantasy world, multiple paths to victory, free for all teams co-op. And then it was a video and it was just a very simple video, nothing flashy or sexy. It was just the, the game board, the player board, which is a ship, which is interesting. And then, you know, pieces being slotted into it. And the heading just said "cannons ready fire" with the explosion emoji. That was it, and that did <laughs> that did really really well. And so I think it's just the, the key to testing because if you came to me with with this with this game, I would say, you know what, ad copy is going to really nail it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it, it's so unintuitive, but right, that's, it just that's doesn't. What sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Uh, what's gonna? That's that's one thing that I've learned about marketing is like, oh, I think this is gonna hit really really well and then it's like no and then the thing that i don't expect to do well does really well and yep. just makes just reminds me that i know nothing i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so funny yeah it's it's interesting because if you know at first it just seems like well it's missing something but it's so stripped down that it's like the things your people care about and it was marketed to your people, you right. know, it was a kind of a cool thing. You kind of started out with a, you know, the intent to market yourself. And I was, I wanted to help you guys do that because you were a first time creator without a lot of money and uh, certainly without a lot of money for this. Right. And I know that uh, your wife was a real believer in the project and she was a huge advocate when we were talking, she was so excited about the project and so proud of you and uh, what you guys had had come up with together. But I knew that you had probably enough to, you know, try Facebook ad stuff. But there came a point where you were like, no, I need to we need to hire this out. And I was wondering, like, what what happened there? You know, like, what was how did that transition take place? And why, you know, it's kind of for others that might be listening, you know, should they do it themselves? Should they hire out, you know, for marketing and that kind of thing? What? How, why did you make the decision you made? I think the biggest thing was time. Like if, you know, if I had unlimited time, you know, I could, I could teach myself over months how to run Facebook ads effectively, especially as it gets closer to a, a launch, you kind of, as a first time creator, you know, my experience was there's so much stuff that I didn't think about. And now I have less time than I thought I was going to have. And how, how could I possibly run ads by myself and make sure that, you know, this is a, a good portion of the success of, of a campaign. Uh, if I leave it to myself and I don't have enough time to do it, then it's, you know, I'm throwing money into, you know, to Mark Zuckerberg's pocket <laughs> without any return. <laughs> 
it's a good way to look at it. What other services did you also hire out? What I know that you probably did a ton of work on your Kickstarter page and other things, but what services did you find you needed to hire out? You know, I have some mediocre Photoshop skills. You know, I can do layouts and stuff like that and i have no no video editing skill or very very minor video editing skills um so like our our kickstarter trailer was hired out the assets for our kickstarter page were hired out i i did the layouts for the kickstarter graphics on on the page honestly might have wanted to hire you know they came out they came out good but i don't i think our kickstarter page could have been a lot better if i worked with someone that had better skills at setting up Kickstarter pages. I think that could have been a miss for us that Mm -hmm. we didn't properly express some parts of our game that would have connected with more people. Just so that everybody knows, how did your game do on Kickstarter? What was your funding goal? What did you reach and how many backers did you get? So our goal was 18,000 and we got to 60,488 with 930 backers. It's pretty awesome. So the average Kickstarter campaign is about 300 backers. So what I I always consider a success is, uh, so we, we kind of spent some time in a previous podcast, like defining the various types of results that could happen. And one of them was, catastrophic success and then one was like some version of like great success and then minor and you know failure of some of two different kinds when i i talked about basically a a solid successful campaign it was between three and five hundred percent funding as long as the funding goal is realistic i mean if you put out a funding goal that was five thousand dollars you would have like you know, 1200% funded, but the the realistic funding goal, you basically hit what I would consider a very successful campaign, but you had others telling you that you, you know, oh, I thought this was going to hit over hundred K or, or, you know, that kind of thing. Like, you know, what is going through your mind when you're hearing things like that? I do think we could have done better. Obviously the campaign did great. It is, it is a success. Like it, we're going to produce the game. Like our funding goal was realistic and tripling that funding goal means we're going to be able to produce quests and cannons and fulfill it to people, which is awesome. And it's going to build that. And, you know, it's, it's also an investment. It's not, you know, even though, you know, we're not going to recoup our initial investment into the project necessarily, uh, you know, we, with after Kickstarter sales, we may, we may see more of that and certainly not our own labor into the project, but that's, you know, that's, to recoup your labor into a project, that's what that's the catastrophic success. You know, you you probably need that several hundred thousand dollar campaign to recoup labor in a in a Kickstarter project. But we're you know this is a su- success because that initial investment will lead us to a you know a customer base that will want to re- when we fulfill this campaign and it hits people's tables and they love the game because you know I, I believe I sincerely believe that that our backers will love love the game. Like the, you know, the review campaign that we did, vast majority of the reviewers loved the game. So I think that's a good market indication that we put out something great. You know, as those games hit people's tables, when we fulfill it, that's going to, you know, naturally that will build a word of mouth campaign around, around that, you know, we'll follow that up with sending out production review copies to reviewers. 
I, I can talk a little bit more about that and how we like structured our, our review campaign and how we're handling that, you know, post Kickstarter as well. But that's that's going to be a big part into building the success. You know, it would be great to run a Kickstarter and be like, oh, we did so well. It's going to be my new day job. But yeah. that's not, you know, it can't be the reality for everyone. Most people probably can't hit that. You know, that's 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 extremely rare, you know, more rare than even a, you know, a very successful campaign. I'd love to jump into reviews, but just maybe before we jump in, I think it's worth mentioning that you actually launched at a incredibly competitive time on Kickstarter. It's like the peak of one of the peaks of the year because you're coming up to Christmas and everybody wants to launch before Christmas and get their pledges in and, and get the, the games moving. So for a first time creator, I think you did exceptionally well with just the the fact that even on Facebook, uh, your cost per impressions is going to be uh, double, nearly triple the price that it's going to be throughout other, other times of the year. And that's what we've been experiencing across ad accounts. And oh, there's going to be a lot more projects launching on Kickstarter. It's far more competitive. So as a first-time creator with no community coming to this fresh and then actually producing a, a substantial fund, I think it's, it's a testament to your hard work and the quality of the product. So yeah, it's definitely... a something to be very pleased with certainly we always do like a, a follow-up meeting before clients launch and i remember jumping on a call with you and i was asking do you have any reviewer quotes and <laughs> i was uh, pleasantly <laughs> surprised that you had a, a huge spreadsheet of reviewers and that's one thing you told me that you, you think you kind of overdid it with reviewers but i don't think you can i think getting as many reviewers to cover the game as possible is only ever going to benefit you so yeah jump into your reviewers and Maybe talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. What what was really great about them? What wasn't so great about it? And you know, who would you recommend uh, review people's games? Maybe send some love their direction. I should pull up, pull up my list so I can reference it. Uh, <laughs> so we we did a lot of pre planning for our review campaign uh, that I think led led to the success of it. And I, I think we we did run a very successful review campaign that I, that is likely the big reason to a you know, a large portion of the success of our campaign. We we were getting a constant stream of pre-launch followers, people to our Facebook group, less to our, our our email list, but I think there might have been an issue on my end that prevented that, which I can I can talk about as as well. <laughs> but the so we we started uh talking to reviewers and building a a list of reviewers uh, pro over a year before our, our launch. It was probably a year and a half before we launched that we started talking to reviewers and building that list. And then, you know, organize, you know, we, we made 25 preview copies of Quest and Cannons and, you know, organized them. Yeah, a large portion of it by hand. Uh, we did we did some print on demand with the Game Crafter, which ended up being a time and cost savings at the end of the day. But the the dual layer player boards, the the terrain tiles, the frame of the board, we all we we did that by well laser cutter, which we had access to at a local makerspace. But it was it was by you know that's by hand. We did it personally in house. Yeah, it was it was it was a really cool process. We I have a self publishing diary that on uh, Board Game Geek that I I outline a, a lot of a lot of the prototyping stuff that we did. Oh, that's great. We'll have to uh, uh, give a link to that in the show notes so for anyone yeah. that wants to do that. You know, I'm amazed at how expensive prototyping is. You know, yeah. it's just not just time consuming, but also when you add up all the money, it's like, wow, I spent several thousand dollars. You know, of making this stuff. 
how can cardboard be so expensive? <laughs> yeah, that well, we actually that was if we did print on demand or short run of quests and cannons for our, our preview campaign, there would have been no feasible way that we could have paid for that. The only way that we we could have could have paid for it was by by prototyping in house because those dual layer player boards, if you if you try to shop those out on any print on demand service, cost prohibitive, one hundred percent. Very expensive. So, and they're huge. They're, I don't know if we really expressed on our Kickstarter page how big those, you know, obviously you saw that in the previews if you got down to that section of our Kickstarter page. But those those player boards are like bigger than my head. Like they're big player boards. You know, that's pretty three, cool. Th- 308 millimeters in, in width. They're, they're big. Wow. That's like as wide as my yeah. box. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty big. yeah. They are. They're wider than the many game boxes. It's it's nuts. Wow. And I actually think you know, kind of going back to the ad that we talked about that worked out the best. It showed the feature component of your game, which was the player boards. You know, and I think that was a really smart move, just to definitely kind of show those things in action. You know, really, you're demonstrating your product and what's unique about the product. It's a really simple way to do that. Show the feature component in action you know yeah and i mean that's not just a sexy component which you know dual layer dual layer player boards are are my personal favorite component but the design of that i'm going to toot shannon's horn there because she she designed the layout of those player boards and she she used her organization and your organizational and like user experience knowledge to like really come up with a player board that makes the gameplay flow nicely it's it's well organized it's intuitive to use so it's like not just like a deluxe feeling component but it streamlines the play of the game and is, it creates a really really pleasant tactile experience which is i i think a big part of playing board games i'm closing out the episode this week just because Richard is in the desert right now, on holiday, enjoying his time, surviving in the wilderness with his family. If you have a question about crowdfunding, please go to crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash question, and we'll make sure to read that. And if it's a great question, we'll even talk about it on the podcast. Make sure to check out part two of this episode coming out next week, as we'll dig into backer kit and some difficulties Eric had with his pledge manager. You can learn a great deal from his struggles hopefully that will help you as well until next time stay nerdy